welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And I'm excited, Joe. We're back to our regular recording schedule. It's Saturday morning. My toddler made me what he calls a sweet hot coffee, which other people would call a latte. Oh, okay. Yeah. I thought that could have gone into like the adult <laughs> beverage range. No, well, I mean, it's really just Dev lets him push the buttons on the espresso machine. Uh. Um, but it's very exciting. We are not trying to cram in a million things right now. It's just us and Nancy mm-hmm. Drew. And Nancy Drew. Although you say we're not trying to cram a bunch of things in here, but we are <laughs> going to try to talk about two different books and also two different movies. So we are... Teen girl sleuth to the max. This we week. are we are wildly sleuthy. I will say though that honestly, I found one of the films so forgettable that I'm not sure I can say anything about it. Yes, and I'm willing to bet I can predict which one you're referring to. <laughs> so, listeners, the reason that we are doing Nancy Drew is because, of course, her new TV series, aka the Riverdale up sexy version of Nancy Drew, <laughs> last Wednesday. So. Joe, we it Joe, would be a fun Joe, time. Joe, what, what, it's like what? River Heights meets Riverdale. Huh? Yes. Huh? Yes. I will allow it because it is <laughs> factually accurate. But please note the disdain in the sigh. <laughs> I would never, ever, ever take your disdain from me away. We should do homework first, though. What do you got? Okay, so I have two pieces of news, news, and feel free to tell me if I'm stepping on your toes, because one of them... We're both extremely excited about, I think. Yes. yes. So maybe we'll talk about that one first then. Okay. Okay. So Valiant Entertainment and HarperCollins Publishers announced, this will now be like two weeks old by the time this episode comes out. It's still huge. Yes. The, yes. So they're partnering with Julie Murphy ah! on... Well, technically, they're starting a series of young adult novels, and their first one will be a partnership with Julie Murphy, and she's going to be taking on the character of Faith. Now, Brenna, if people have no idea who Faith is, how would you describe her? Faith is amazing. She really is. She's super fun. (laughs) Faith is a fat, 20-something social media manager living in LA who is also, P.S., a kick-ass superhero. Yes. Now, in this version, she's actually going to be a teenager who's finishing her senior year. But yeah, I believe that this is going to be a bit of an origin story. It's her discovering that she has the capacity to fly and generally kick butt. Now, obviously, this is super exciting because you and I both love Julie Murphy. Yes. And I love Faith. I love Faith. Well, that's the other thing is I feel like this is actually a good opportunity. I appreciate the fact that Faith is not traditionally YA in the comics, but if Mm -hmm. people are looking for a good comic, Faith is a really good pick. So here are some of the things I love about Faith. First of all, if you're into comic art, but you also would like to see other kinds of bodies represented, yeah, Faith is amazing. And one of the things I love best about the way she is represented is that like, she looks like a real woman. Yep. She is fat in the places where actual human beings get fat. And yes. she's not just, I don't know, they didn't just like expand a typical spandex character. Like she mm-hmm. she looks like a real human body in a way that is so refreshing. Yes. The way she chooses to costume herself, I don't even want to give anything away. Go pick up the comic. It's just fantastic. Mm-hmm. 
but also she's hilarious. She really is. If you like the kind of in-world comic humor of like a squirrel girl or a Deadpool, like jokes about sort of the meta world of being a superhero, it's a perfect title for you. And it's got a ton of heart. Yeah, I think the thing that I like the most is that I like Squirrel Girl. That is a great comparison. Faith doesn't have any issues with herself. No, no. She has doubts and she, you know, wonders whether or not she's always doing the right thing. But she's not constantly out there talking about her fat body and how she doesn't fit into society or all these other things. No, it's a comic about being a superhero. It's not a comic about being a fat superhero. It's like, I just... uh... I read Faith for the first time, like when it first came out, and I remember staring at the first issue, like, did did that really just happen? Because mm-hmm. it's so different than anything I'd ever read before. It feels like a breath of fresh air. It totally feels like a breath of fresh air. I think actually that's one of the blurbs on the on the title of the trade paper version. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. No, I can't recommend Faith as a comic book highly enough. And, you know, novelizations of comics have a history that is sometimes rocky although i will say the unbeatable squirrel girl novelizations are fantastic oh really yeah they're really funny they're more middle grade but they're still they're great but i can't think of anyone i would trust with this character i love so profoundly more than i would trust julie murphy obviously Mm -hmm. and for listeners you know that julie murphy is the author of dumplin and puddin which are books that we love yeah no it's just the kind of marriage between creator and content that makes so much sense when you hear it and even just seeing julie murphy's reaction online yeah she was like fangirling her own news (laughs) you can tell that she's totally excited and in love with the possibilities for this project and she's talking about how she's not just rethinking aspects of faith in terms of narrative and origin story um but she also alluded to the fact that there will be some queering of the story as well so that's pretty exciting Oh, Julie Murphy. Never afraid to rock the boat just a little bit. I love her so much. I want to be her best friend. (laughs) I want to have her over to watch Netflix. I just feel like she's just great and would be a lot of fun. Yes. Uh, Okay, so the second piece of news you may be slightly less enthusiastic about, but we'll see. I know exactly what you're going to say. You know nothing. I know everything. (laughs) Yeah, you probably do. Okay. It's because I'm very predictable when it comes to these sorts of things. Well, it's because you tweet this stuff to me and then you bring it out as news on the show. (laughs) You know what? I'm trying to keep you in the loop. I don't know what your life is like on Twitter. (gasps) Are you not there 24 hours a day like me? Uh, Okay, so again, this news will be a little bit old, but the publishing date and title of the Hunger Games prequel was announced. The title is stupid. I'm sure it'll make sense in context, but yes, the <laughs> Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes Come on. doesn't really roll off the tongue. No. It sounds like a Lainey Taylor book, which is fine if you're Lainey Taylor, but I don't understand why Suzanne Collins is trying to be Lainey Taylor. The whole thing is weird to me. I felt like it was a bit more like a Lord of the Rings Ooh. style, you know, Tom Bombadil might sing a Ballad of Songbirds <laughs> and Snakes. I hate Tom Bombadil. <laughs> Come at us, nerds. <laughs> Yeah, none of them will ever listen to this. 
it? So the thing that we knew about this was that it was untitled previously and it was going to be a prequel. But now they have clarified that this new book, which is dropping in May, May 19th of 2020, it now has this title. And the other fascinating thing to me is that it takes place 64 years before the original (sighs) book. So it's going to take place on the 10th Hunger Games, which I thought... Hey, hey, come back to me. Come back, come back. (laughs) I'm fascinated by the decision to not focus on the first. Yes! So that to me is the the thing where I'm like, why the 10? The only story I give two hot S's about is (laughs) is how. Wait, what's the second S? (laughs) I'm just, I don't know. As we talked about in the show when we talked about the Hunger Games, my antipathy for the Hunger Games doesn't actually match how I felt about The Hunger Games when it first came out, and I've really loved it, and I actually think the first film is a really great adaptation, and if you want to hear me say all of that, listen to that episode. Mm-hmm. But it's the... At a certain point, the author and the industry's relationship to a text just becomes extractive, <laughs> and I'm just... I'm not here for it anymore. Prove me right. wrong, Suzanne Collins. Do something great here. Prove me wrong. You know I'm going to read it. Yeah. I'm just profoundly tired. And I think it's also part of it is I am developing just such a profound remake fatigue. Right. Yeah. I don't know when we got to the point as a culture where we apparently don't want to put money behind anything that hasn't at least been attempted before. And I find it freaking weird. Like people are going to write PhD theses about this eventually. And I oh, just, yeah, for sure. I don't know. And to me, this all falls into that. It's the same way I feel about, I don't know, what does JK Rowling call her fantastic beasts and, and where to make money off them or whatever. I just, sure. I'm just, I'm bored, Joe, I'm bored. And my frustration is that on the one hand, we get these irritating publishing treatises about how no one buys YA anymore and we need to breathe new life into it as a category. And then they turn around and they're like, uh, we're going to spend all our marketing money on another Hunger Games book and I just want to throw coffee at the screen. Yeah. I won't because as we've established this morning, my mic is rickety enough as it is, but <laughs> I want to. Yeah, we, we do need that mic. So you know, <laughs> don't, don't break the merchandise. It is fascinating, though, because in a way, what we see happening with books, and I'm, I'm not enough of a scholar of books to know whether or not this is something that's being done in relationship to things like movies, but it feels like the books are taking a cue from movies where now yeah. it's endless sequels yeah. and remakes and, you know, the same like-minded properties. You know, we've talked endlessly about how excited slash not excited we are for Disney Plus, yeah. which feels like it's really just mining the back catalog for established properties. Well, and I think we've talked about this when I insistently brought up the Save by the Bell news. A lot of the streaming platforms, these new, whether it's Peacock or Disney Plus or whatever, <sighs> they seem to primarily exist to make back catalog content, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. They are nostalgia factories. And I, I joked about how us OG millennials have really stoked that fire and like I and I mm-hmm. you know we are partially responsible we are partially responsible. can I talk to you about my toddler's favorite books the X-Files spin-off toddler books the Star Trek spin-off toddler books the Star Wars spin-off toddler books like I get it I'm as guilty as anyone of an affection for nostalgia sure but it's interesting so John Hodgman you know John Hodgman 
I do not. Okay, so John Hodgman, I think he used to have a column on The Daily Show. I feel like that's how he got famous. And he has a podcast called Judge John Hodgman. He's one of those people who like yeah. actually makes his living writing books and making podcasts. Oh. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, Take a cue from him. Yeah, seriously. And uh, he has this thing. So one of the podcasts that I have listened to since the inception of podcasts is um, Stuff You Should Know. And they did an episode on nostalgia where he was a guest. And he talked about what he considers to be the toxic quality of nostalgia. Mm, that when a yeah. culture gets too committed, too invested in nostalgia, first of all, it has his argument is it has social ramifications, right? If you start to believe that everything in the past was better, that right. can have social ramifications usually for the most marginalized people. Yep. But also, it has a stagnation, stagnative? It stagnates the culture, right? Yeah. And when I first heard that episode, which was many years ago, I was kind of like, oh, man, don't be so hard on nostalgia. It don't be rocks. such a buzzkill. Don't be such a buzzkill. Let me buy my <laughs> pop figurines of Saved by the Bell. Uh, fast forward. But yeah, fast forward. And I'm, I see exactly what he's talking about. And I, it's one thing for big blockbusters to make those calls. I have a complicated relationship about my feelings between how much big blockbusters reflect actual culture and desire versus what we're being told culture yeah. desires mm -hmm. but the flip side of that is i'm seeing it now in every element of our media yep and it's profoundly worrisome to me even as i participate in it right like last week we talked about archie and i talked about how much i've loved this reboot of archie but if the only thing that archie comics produces forever is reboots of titles that came out in the 1940s i don't think that's good either Mm-hmm. It's very, I've been told I say tricky too often, but in this case, I really do feel like it's a tricky balancing act. We literally just talked about how excited we are that Julie Murphy is going to not write an original book. Yep. She's going to repurpose a Valiant comic. And we were both very excited about it. And I'm right? totally aware of how much I participate in nostalgic culture and how comfortable it is to take an author I already know I love and a property mm -hmm. I already know I love and put them together and know that I'm going to love that thing that they make. Yeah. But well, I think that's our struggle with something like a Hunger Games prequel. Yeah. A, it sort of smacks of a been there, done that. You know, when we talked about the Mortal Instruments, we really rode Cassandra Clare yeah. for saying, you built your career on just doing the same thing. Yeah. And I think part of it is that we feel... I'm speaking for both of us. Correct Always. Me if I'm wrong. It's fine. You can just do it in life. Do you want to pay my taxes? Uh, no, but you know, <laughs> I, I would like to mansplain something to you. <laughs> no, I feel like we both agree that Suzanne Collins is an actually good writer. And yes. she hasn't produced anything since Mockingjay. So to hear her coming no. back with a prequel, yes. it feels like she's playing the greatest hits. And I guess I wish she would have tackled something new. With that said, I'm willing to give her the benefit of a doubt that if she says, you know what, the 10th Hunger Games is something worth exploring. Okay, I'm with you, Brenna. <laughs> it's like, okay, impress me, show me something new. But you know what part of it is for me? It's that the third book sucked. Mm -hmm. The last three films, frankly, were a dog's breakfast. So <laughs> it's not like we're tapping a well. I mean... In a way, it's one thing for J.K. Rowling to come back and say, I'm going to fill in the universe. I mean, she did it egregiously in so many ways. Like, let's not talk about North America at all. But that was already a, a well-constructed 
series, right? Mm -hmm. The wheels fell off the bus for Suzanne Collins. And there's been lots of conversation in publishing about why that happened, that she was forced to cram what was two books into the last one, that then they expanded that out into the two movies, that there were a whole bunch of financial pressures around that. But I kind of want, I don't know, I, I it's weird. Like those last movies were not successful. And it's interesting to me that that doesn't stop the remake train. And at yeah. a certain point... Your cash cow got to become burgers and you got to move on with your life. Yeah, I think that's my big thing is I don't begrudge authors who feel like there's still more story to be told. But this has always felt like a bit of a financially driven decision, particularly when you see the way that the trades talk about it. And I apologize to listeners, we'll wrap this up and we'll move on at this point. But it's just interesting when you see the way that stories are reported, they always talk not just about the number of books that were sold, but also how much the films made and the star power that ended up producing Jennifer Lawrence and all these other things and you're thinking but the prequel has nothing to do with the films oh wait it's because you've already inked the deal on the movie adaptation yeah because it's a license to print money and that's what's driving these creative decisions yeah that's what i worry about i worry that suzanne collins said okay no one will give me money or they will not give me the same kind of publishing push unless i'm writing this dumb hunger games prequel yeah which Again, for the record, could be good. We'll see. Prove us wrong. I mean, (laughs) we will read it and we'll probably watch it and we will probably Mm -hmm. have things to say about it, but I'm skeptical. Yeah. Yep. (sighs) Yeah. Okay. Are you okay to move into Nancy Drew? Because I feel like we're sort of having another discussion about nostalgia. (laughs) We are. I do have a little bit of homework to report on, um, which is mostly because it's a follow-on to Conversation Last Day. Oh, okay. But I'm about halfway through Meredith Russo's second book, Birthday. Oh, yes. Okay. So last week we talked about... If I Was Your Girl. If I Was Your Girl and the constructive feedback that we got from Andrew. Mm-hmm. And that was all around Meredith Russo's first book. So how's yeah. the second book? It's really good. Yeah? Yeah. It's different. It's got a really interesting structure. And I'm only halfway through and my whole resolution was not talking about books until I finished them. But I thought mm. that given the feedback that we received, I wanted to touch on this book while it's still really fresh in my mind. Okay. So... It's called Birthday. So the premise is that we have two best friends who are assigned male at birth, who are born on the same day. Their moms are friends. They go through, you know, all the pre-birth stuff together. They are born in the same hospital on the same day, and they're sort of lifelong best friends as a result. Okay. And the book is structured so that it checks in with them on their birthday every year for five years yeah fun okay yeah so it's really interesting you get like these little dips in and out of their lives and for one of the two he feels very comfortable in his male body but he has some questions about his sexuality that he's not able to disclose because he's growing up with a whole bunch of brothers in a really traditionally masculine kind of family Mm -hmm. with a real patriarchal and frankly abusive dad The other character is not sure what to make of their body, but pretty sure they were supposed to be a girl and can't talk about it with their dad because, and the only reason I'm using they them pronouns here is because I haven't actually gotten to the part where they decide how to articulate themselves in the world. So I don't want to, I don't want to jump on it. But if you finish the book and you know that I'm incorrect, know that I will get there. Right. And their dad is grieving the loss of his wife the character's mom and still doesn't really feel like that's a conversation that can happen 
Right. And so they're start the two are starting to drift apart because there's also a whole class thing, which you know how much I like it when YA mm-hmm. actually tackles class because it does yep. it so rarely. Um, so there's a whole class thing. One of the two is extremely comfortable and well off and the other one lives in a trailer park and is not. Anyway, it's really interesting so far because there's a lot of meditation on different ways to be a man and what masculinity looks like because it seems like all the characters are kind of wrestling with this small town's obsession with football and all that that sort of brings. Uh, It's interesting to read it after the Tim Wynn Jones book that we read for our interview with him because... Mm -hmm. Remember how much of that book was about questions of masculinity and the toxicity of a particular version of masculinity? Yeah, for sure. That entire book is infused with it. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, Birthday is treading the same ground, but in a really, just the structure is so interesting. So each section of the book is in a different year, and then within each section, it moves back and forth between the two characters, like chapter by chapter. Mm Mm-hmm. And the two characters are beautifully articulated in that sometimes when authors do that, you can't really tell which character is talking when. Yeah. <laughs> That's not the case here. Meredith Russo is really good at good. what she does. So anyway, so far, strongly recommend it. It deals probably more overtly with the bullying experience okay. of questioning your gender and sexuality or the internalization of sort of world's expectations and so i think for some of our listeners there could be some trauma triggers there but yeah, I, think, I was gonna say that sounds a little harder yeah but i think meredith Rousseau deals with it well generously and gently uh so so far it's a recommend for me but i just wanted to make sure i talked about it while it was still really fresh lest i make the same mistake i made last time mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. sounds good i mean i i feel like i just really enjoy the way that meredith Rousseau writes yes. to me she feels like one of the discoveries that i've made having done this podcast that i might have otherwise missed so yes. she's the kind of author that i feel like i'm gonna follow her wherever she goes yes i feel like meredith Rousseau is one i think tiffany d jackson is one that the podcast mm-hmm. made me aware of julie murphy like mm-hmm. there are some names who i probably would have read their big book but my excitement about their careers and what they have to do next definitely yes. comes out of this show so yeah yeah okay so maybe let's turn to nancy drew nancy drew nancy drew (laughs) what is your what is your history with nancy drew because i'm actually afraid that we might offend or delicately offend some older listeners who maybe grew up on the text because i don't think either one of us have the same kind of historical connection to this character that other people do No, and I'm definitely mindful of that because, yeah, this character means a great deal to a lot of people, but I did not grow up with Nancy Drew. And it's weird how childhood before the internet. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, It is a thing. I think, I don't know. There's no reason why I shouldn't have come across Nancy Drew. I remember that our library had them all, our little small town library, but I found the old timey yellow hardcovers and the sort of musty smell emanating from that end of the stack really unappealing. (laughs) And I was passionately committed as a small girl to, listeners will be shocked, Anne of Green Gables. Mm -hmm. Also, how have we not done Anne of Green Gables on this show yet, by the way? Uh, I think we missed the premiere date of Anne with an E for the third season, so I think we're now holding out hope it will be both renewed and also that we will be ready to tackle it for the next cycle there's also a lot of iterations right because there's there were two tv shows that came out at the same time and there's anyway it doesn't matter so i was talking about nancy drew again (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i was really committed to Anne, and i i reread Anne every year and she was sort of my plucky girl heroine of choice 
Right. And then in terms of series, I was a hardcore Babysitter's Club fan, mostly because Babysitter's Clubs were still coming out when I was a kid. So there was Fair. constantly new content. And mm-hmm. I always just thought the Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys books looked so old fashioned. And I definitely have my whole life been guilty of judging books by covers. How can you not? Let's be honest. Yeah. So it's funny because I think based on my interest, most listeners would have expected that I grew up on Nancy Drew, but... No, not the case. This is actually the first Nancy Drew I've ever read. I know. It's been an interesting induction into the mythos, hasn't it? <laughs> so I read a little bit of Hardy Boys, but it was kind of the same situation where it felt like it was a generation or two removed. So I actually read a variation, like an updated, modernized version called The Three Investigators, which was very much informed by the Hardy Boys, but it was presented as an Alfred Hitchcock extension. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so it's three boys. It's like a smart, fat boy and an athletic, tall boy. And then I can never remember the third character. I'm probably confusing them. But they live in Hollywood and they get cases handed to them by Alfred Hitchcock. But it's very, very similar in the way that Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys where, you know, at the end of each book, it's like, oh, I hope I get another mystery. Maybe it'll be the secret of the burrowing owl. And then, you know, <laughs> lo and behold, the next book in the series is <gasps> such a book. That's what happens at the end of this one. It literally has the title of the next book in italics. <laughs> the mm-hmm. end of the book. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should do a little bit of history because I, well, I think I rocked your world right before we started recording by telling you that the books that we read were not actually the original Nancy Drew books. See, I know you said that. And now I've pulled up a comparison between the two and I don't know which book I read. Because <laughs> some of the stuff that it's saying happened in the 1930 edition, I remember. But maybe I'm having a fever dream, Joe. I don't know. Okay, so listeners, if you didn't know, Nancy Drew dates back to the 1930s, and the series is written by Carolyn Keene, but that is actually a pseudonym, and the real author is, let's see, Mildred Wirt Benson. She was hired by Edward Stratemeyer, who was the founder of The Syndicate, which sounds super nefarious, by it the way. It sounds so nefarious. <laughs> But it's actually just a publishing company. (laughs) They were looking for a property that they could sell to young girls. So they hired her to ghostwrite a mystery series of a 18-year-old girl, or sorry, a 16-year-old girl who solves mysteries. And then in 1959, the books were rewritten by Harriet Adams, Stratemeyer's daughter, and she continued to write new books. So I think Mildred Wirt Benson only wrote about 30. Okay. Do people consider those like the OG Nancy Drew? Well, yeah. I mean, the issue is... No one knew. You can't find the 1930s versions anymore. I think they actually scrapped those versions. They physically look different. So they, I mean, publishing differed in the almost 30 years that passed between the two iterations. But were the 1931s like super racist or something? Although this book had a this book had a gypsy joke in it. So it does. Yeah. So here's some of the big differences. So Brenna and I read The Hidden Staircase, which is the second installment in this series. And there's about almost 60 of them. You guys, spoiler alert, the answer to the mystery, it's in A Hidden hidden Staircase. staircase. Yeah. I was like the whole time just waiting for The Hidden Staircase. Like, what did, what, uh, and fine, whatever. 
Yeah, <laughs> the naming of the books is too on the nose, but I do wonder if this is one of those things where it's just like, oh, we become more savvy to this idea that, yeah, they just tell you things up front <laughs> in these books. So I also read the first one because I wasn't sure whether or not it was important that we read them. And it also it was the one I could get out of the library fastest. So I also read The Secret of the Old Clock. A spoiler alert, the will that she's looking for is it in an, an old, old clock? clock? Oh, for the love of <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so a couple of significant differences. This is fascinating if you're interested in the way that women's history is informed by men's choices. <laughs> <laughs> this is fascinating if you're not sick of hearing us talk about patriarchy. Right, patriarchy, yes. ladies and gentlemen. Patriarchy. Managed to make it almost 30 minutes this time without saying it. <laughs> So in the 30s, Nancy was written, she was a bit of a wild, independent girl, which is pretty freaking revolutionary for books published in the 30s for young girls. So in these books, she's a 16-year-old, and she's out there doing stuff and solving mysteries. And then in the 1950s or late 50s redo, she is changed. So here's a direct quote from Wikipedia. Nancy is depicted as a less impulsive, less headstrong girl, and she becomes a milder, more sedate, and refined girl. And the quote that they give is that she becomes more sugar and less spice. Ugh. Yeah. So needless to say, the original author, Mildred Ward Benson, was not impressed by these changes. This is really interesting, right? Because it coincides very nicely with post-war American history. If you're not up to date in your post-war American history, you might have forgotten that before World War II, women were making significant strides in terms of access to workplace, in terms mm -hmm. of laws around inheritance, property ownership, still couldn't have credit cards, but... Um, oh, baby steps. Those kinds of things were really liberalizing very quickly through the 30s because of a little thing called the Great Depression which meant that it was all hands on deck. You weren't going to stay home and not work out of some like piety about the definition of femininity if your family mm -hmm. couldn't eat. Yeah. And so much like the way the First World War liberalized women's roles because we just needed women's labor, the 30s had a similar impact. And then you have the war. Women go to work in factories and all sorts of other places in the Second World War. And then you have the post-war period when governments are terrified of an economic slowdown, like the one that came a decade after the First World War. Mm -hmm. They're terrified about not having enough jobs for returning veterans. And so women were socially encouraged quite strongly to return to the home. And also, please don't make a fuss. And also, please yes. be demure. <laughs> You have a push away from women's independence. This is when, you know, women's lib becomes an insult, for example. You have a push away from women working. You have an idealization of the domestic sphere that really echoes the Victorian angel of the house stuff. Yeah. But it's all wrapped up in a kind of post-war excitement about science because it's like, but it's so much more fun to be a housewife now because we have washing machines mm -hmm. and microwave dinners. Yeah. Look at what science can do to improve the homestead. 
And so it's fascinating to me that a little girl in 1959 would be getting, I mean, it's not fascinating. It's totally, I mean, it's fascinating, but it's also totally fitting that a little girl in 1959 would be reading stories about not a bold and brassy private investigator, but a demure, sweet girl who serves the community, which is very much how this version of Nancy Drew comes across to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm actually fascinated because there's some pretty big distinctions between the two books that we read. And I almost wish that you had have read The Secret of the Old Clock because I can't say with any authority that it's more representative of what Nancy Drew is like. But there were some stunning pieces of social ideology that just really frustrated me to oh, no end that I wanted to share with you. So I'm just going to bring them up now. Yeah. So The Secret of the Old Clock concerns a missing will. It's in the clock. It is in the clock. <laughs> the big issue is actually finding the clock. The oh. clock is difficult to find. It's not like just sitting out there for everyone to see. <laughs> but the struggle with it is, and this happens very much in the, the hidden staircase as well, Nancy always just happens to run into people who have a part to play in the mystery. Like, if she doesn't run into you, it's because you will not be helpful in solving whatever case she's working on. And that's much more front and center in The Secret of the Old Clock, where literally every character that she meets will be important. So, you know, she sees a child almost fall into a river, she saves her, and that's how the mystery kicks up. And then, you know, she runs into these, like, sisters who are spinsters, and they live out on a farm and they're poor and yep they're also going to be very important oh my god and it's funny in a way that you're just like okay this is a different mode of storytelling that we're not used to as a contemporary audience that's very generous of you yes well i'm i don't know i'm trying to put myself into a position where i can't just anticipate everything that will happen because this was not the most exciting of reads But the big thing that struck me, and this is what's fascinating about the changes between the 30s version and the 59 version. So every person that Nancy meets that ends up informing her case. So it's a bunch of poor people who were expecting to be given a piece of the inheritance of an old eccentric man. And instead, he gave his entire estate to a wealthy family called the Tophams. Hmm. And they're very unlikable, and they're very conceited, and they're very focused on social status and wealth. And Nancy hates them for all of these reasons, because she thinks that they're conceited and they're rude and they're mean. And she loves all of these poor people because they're so warm and generous and they're so emblematic of what an American should be. I really wish that we had a video blog because the face I'm making at the microphone right now, I'm a little concerned my face is going to stick this way. There's a piety, right? And this is something we'll talk about, I think, when we get to the two films, because I think that's why one works and the other one doesn't. (laughs) But, uh, you know, Nancy is very much the all-American girl. She's sweet, she's kind, she's generous, but she also loves the hardworking American, the person who wants to get rich quickly, the person who wants easy things. She doesn't like those people because they're not representative of who we should be. Now, the hilarious thing about all of this is that in The Secret of the Old Clock, every time she meets these people, she's like, oh, it's so terrible. These people don't have money and they're owed this. And then she hops into her convertible. (laughs) And then she goes home to her house with her housekeeper who makes meals for her. Yeah. And then she goes to the department store so that she can buy a new dress for the dance. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> like, Brenna, <laughs> I was so frustrated because I was like, hey, Nancy, you're middle class to high class. You're a bit of a snobby <laughs> so. <laughs> But of course, she had none of that self-awareness. She's no. just like, it's such a shame that these women don't have any money and they're destitute living on this farm out on the edge of town. Hey, does that dress come in purple? <laughs> <laughs> Nancy, take a look in the mirror, girl. Oh, that's amazing. <sighs> Whereas I think the big issue with The Hidden Staircase is that it does away with some of the cast of interesting side characters. Yeah. And it basically just strands Nancy in the most repetitive of narratives. It's like, hey, is that the ghost on the second floor? No, it's the ghost on the first floor. Hey, is that a, <laughs> a hidden staircase? Oh, I can't get this door open. <laughs> Maybe we should tell people what the plot is. Sure. We haven't done that. Yeah, there's ghosts, but there aren't ghosts. And there's a hidden staircase. The end. No, so... <laughs> it's basically Scooby-Doo with Nancy Drew. Yes, it is. There's basically two plot lines going on. So Nancy Drew's dad is a lawyer, which I guess everybody else in the universe knows except me. So <laughs> Nancy Drew's dad I is a lawyer. Know. I thought he was going to be a private eye because where else did she learn all this stuff from? Well, that's right. There's all this illusion that she learned all of this from her dad, who's a lawyer. And I'm like, but that's not lawyers, what lawyers don't go do. around solving mysteries. Not usually. Not usually. So her father is, he's trying to stop a railway from being built, or at least he's trying to stop this new railway bridge from being erected that's going to displace some folks or like he has i think he has clients whose homes are going to be displaced anyway he's standing in the way of this whole railroad progress situation and that's kind of the subplot to the whole book because it places nancy drew's dad in danger it places him sort of against interests that are pushing to make money and so he ends up in danger because of it so nancy's solving a mystery but she's also super anxious about her dad um, and what's going on with him so there's that plot line that runs through. And then the other, the actual mystery of the hidden staircase is a friend of Nancy's asks her to come and stay with her, I think, great aunt and her great great aunt. Is that right? So she is the great granddaughter of Miss Flora. That's and right. And the great niece, niece of Aunt Rosemary. Of Aunt Rosemary, yes. So she asks Nancy to come with her to Twin Elms, which is the name of her home, because her great great grandmother and great aunt, her oldies, are worried that it's haunted. Yes. And one thing that I liked is that I don't think Nancy ever believes that the house is haunted. She keeps saying things like, oh, I guess our ghost is stealing things. Like, just suggests that she knows that it's probably not supernatural. Yeah, because she's not prone to superstition. She's very much grounded in rational thinking, logic, yes. science, all these kinds of things. Which is useful because she acts as an anchoring force for these other three who are going completely off the rails. Ha! Yeah. Railway humor. Um <laughs> <laughs> because they believe the house is haunted. Anyway, as one might presume, these two plots do come together. The same person who is agitating for the railroad is intent on purchasing Twin Elms. And so he's trying to scare the old ladies into giving him a good deal on this house so that he can put in his property development in this and the neighboring property. Mm -hmm. And Nancy, through a series of convenient moments of expertise and... Convenient uh, being the key word. <laughs> and um, overhearing conversations, realizes that there is a secret passageway that connects the two houses. 
And in the passageway, there's both a hidden staircase that allows Nathan Gomber is the bad guy, and he has a bunch of associates like Willie Wharton. It allows them to get into the house to mess things around and make the women feel that their house is being haunted, but it also gives him a place to stash the drugged body of Nancy Drew's father. Mm-hmm. That's the about end. It. How's that, Joe? How's that Pretty for good. a concise plot? Pretty darn good. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, better than my long rambly... <laughs> I guess the important thing to note in both texts is that Nancy is, she's very much an independent woman in the way that she's able to make her own decisions and then she's able to go out and offer help to people who need it based on her own criteria. The town also has an absurd amount of faith in her. Yes. I would say that the best contemporary analog in terms of her relationship to River Heights is Rory from Gilmore Girls. The way everyone in town has just decided that like Rory is their girl and she can't do any wrong. That's the way this town feels about Nancy Drew. To the point where I texted Joe last <laughs> night, just furious because <laughs> the police can't get a confession out of the two men they've captured and they need to get confessions out of them in order to figure out where Nancy Drew's dad's being hidden. And so the police not just allow, but invite and encourage Nancy Drew to do the interrogation independently independently with no police presence which i get it like 1959 i don't think anybody had rights in 1959 but the best part is that she extracts confessions out of them in like a minute and a half Mm -hmm. and it's like there's convenient expertise and then there's i'm gonna throw this book across the room except i was reading it on my new ipad for work so i didn't but (laughs) but like i found that um deeply annoying Yeah, I mean, the number of times that she calls the police in the hidden staircase is probably in the double digits. Yes. To the point where, and I'm not going to transition too far into the film, but I did love that there was an actual joke. Yes. At the expense of that particular (laughs) narrative development in one of the films where the police don't take Nancy Drew seriously (laughs) because they're just like, we have actual crimes to deal with. We can't just be on the phone with you all the time. (laughs) You know, she says, hi, please, you know, my father is missing. I haven't heard from him in 12 hours. And then she says, hi, please, I can't get these people to tell me the truth. Hi, please, someone needs to walk the perimeter of this house. And you're just like, Nancy, there might be other crimes that are happening. It can't just be all about you. Which they happily put a patrolman on this property for, I guess, days and days. Like, he's just Mm -hmm. always there, which is, again, he's very convenient that he's always there. And then, yet, okay, so she spends the entire book bothering the police. And then at the end, they're like, well, it makes the most sense for you to take the confession. Like, yeah. I didn't dislike it, and I can see that if I had read these when I was 12, I would have probably mowed through the whole series and really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. But um, it doesn't hold up to an adult reading at all. No, to the point where I almost wondered whether this is, I mean, I don't think the designation existed in either the 30s or the late 50s, but I wondered if this is more appropriate for middle school. Definitely, I think so. Yeah, and I think that that's one thing that, the Emma Roberts film, the Emma Roberts film really seems to age her down mm-hmm. in a way that felt actually more more appropriate, I appropriate think. to the way she moves through the world. Yes. <laughs> um, annoying. And it's rare that I actually get annoyed that someone's been aged down in a YA film. But yeah, I definitely feel like these are books that would be much like the Babysitter's Club, right? Like 
these are books that may have 15 and 16 year olds as protagonists, but the reader should be 12 or 13. Yeah. Yeah. What's also very interesting, one thing I neglected to mention is that Nancy was written as 16 in the 1930s versions, and then she was aged up to 18 in the yeah. 59 version. I actually wanted to say something to you. I was very confused about how old she was supposed to be mm-hmm. in the 1959 version because she... Well, she's able to drive. And she moves about the world with impunity, right? She doesn't ask her father's permission very often. No. She just goes and does what she wants to do. And her best friend Shocking. is... Shocking. And her Shocking. best friend is engaged. Yes. Right. So there were times when I felt like I was reading about just really spoiled 20 somethings. Mm-hmm. And then there were times when I was like, oh, this is a petulant 14 year old. <laughs> yeah. And to be honest, the amount of times the level of danger is never super great. Like it's actually accentuated in both of the films yes. where there's, you know, characters with guns and yes. attempts to drive Nancy off the road, which yes. is genuinely shocking. Yes. Although the driving off the road happens in the book. This is true, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it always seems a little bit more delicate. Yes. Nancy never feels like she's truly in trouble. You know, in the first book, she actually stumbles into a house that's being robbed by three nefarious men. And instead of doing anything to her, they lock her in the closet. Well, there's definitely a sense that she can't actually come to any harm at any point. Mm-hmm. And I get why they've done that. I mean, she's the girl detective. She's not going to come to any harm. But it's interesting that, I'm going to say Carolyn (laughs) Keene, wants us to both believe her to be in imminent peril and believe her to always come out on top. And that's a hard balance to strike for any writer. Uh, And it didn't quite work for me here. But also, I don't think I should be reading this book. This is a book for a 12-year-old girl. There you go. Yeah. Uh, maybe let's transition over to the film. Yeah, let's. I've said everything I wanted to say. Mostly I just wanted to complain about the part where she interrogates the suspects. It's pretty ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> In the town of River Heights, there's no mystery that Nancy Drew can't solve. Nancy's my best man. I mean, she would be if she were on the force. Now, she's moving to the big city and making a big impression. I noticed you were wearing penny loafers. I like old-fashioned things. Oh, we've noticed. She's my sister, but I also think she might be the devil. This summer... Did you know there's a mystery to this house? It's one of the greatest unsolved cases of all time. Everyone who has tried to piece this thing together has run into trouble. Where Nancy Drew goes, mystery always follows. I wonder who tried to kill us. Yeah, I'm wondering that too. In fact, I'm kind of freaking out about it. Nancy Drew. I'm from the tunnel and I'm going in. If I'm not back in 10 minutes, that means something bad's happened. <laughs> I don't think that was a joke. Let's begin with the 2007 version, simply called Nancy Drew. Thanks, I hated it. <laughs> and we're moving on. <laughs> Joe, I mean, I know you've got to run through the cast and everything, but I really can't articulate for our audience enough how boring this movie is. It's wacky and eccentric in ways that, to me, this is a film that has no sense of tone. It thinks it's a caper? Yes. But it's not a caper. (laughs) A little bit representative of filmmaking in the mid-2000s, not gonna lie. Yeah, I know, that's fair. And Emma Roberts does not sell it at all. Yeah, we're going to get hate mail for that because I think a lot of people actually think Emma Roberts is pretty good in this. I don't I don't agree with those people. <laughs> okay, so this is a movie directed by Andrew Fleming and he co-wrote the script with Tiffany Paulson. It's progressive of them to always have at least one female associated with the teen girl sleuth. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So as you mentioned, Emma Roberts as Nancy Drew, Max Theorot as Ned, who I gathered becomes like her kind of boyfriend paramour in the book, but he's not in any of the books that we read, is he? No, and in my attempt to get some context, I sort of read up on who Ned is supposed to be. And he's supposed to be quite dashing. Is this again where we can't look at mid-teen boys and think of them as boyfriend material? There's nothing dashing about this twerpy little dweeb. (laughs) Nothing. There's one point where I think he might actually be reading a teleprompter when he's delivering his lines. He's, He's egregiously bad in this movie, I think. It's true, which is funny because people would recognize him. He grows up to be Dylan on Bates Motel, and I believe he's on, I think, the Navy SEAL show with David Boreanaz, and he's an okay actor. I mean, I think people find him attractive, which is probably why he gets roles, but he's kind of genuinely terrible in this movie. He's so bad. I kept wondering, you know how I don't usually trust whether I somebody's actually bad or not? Mm-hmm. He's like objectively not You trusted yourself with impunity? <laughs> I did because I kept, every time he was back on screen, I was like, okay, now I'm going to give him a chance. And he'd be like, hi, Nancy. I'm here to see you because I'm really happy to see you. And I was like, what is happening? People are meant to believe that we have some kind of romantic connection, but it just doesn't work at all. Yeah. No. Okay. So in this version of the story, it's very much presented as a fish out of water. Nancy moves with her father to Los Angeles while he works on a case. And of course, she had the choice of homes that she gets to pick. And so she picked a haunted house. So that's how your your connection to the hidden staircase comes in is that she picks a house that may be haunted by the ghost of a dead movie star named Delia Draycott, who's played by Laura Herring. From the beginning. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, can I just say that from the beginning of the movie, I was really pissed off. Like, oh yeah, we're moving across the country. I'm going to let my teenage daughter pick our house and apparently sign a rental agreement I can't get out of sight unseen? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. from the beginning, it's like trying to be a goofy 80s yes. kids having too much control over their universe and messing it up movie. Yeah. But it doesn't have enough heart to sell it. So no. it's just irritating. And also, I don't know who that actor is, the dad, but what a low rent Matthew Broderick that guy is. <laughs> Sorry, go on. So it would be Tate Donovan. And <laughs> he's still playing Carson Drew as a lawyer, but he dresses like a 1950s gumshoe a la yes. any film noir that you might have seen, but definitely like Humphrey Bogart-esque. And they're super broke. They're super broke, but she also goes to a public school and has a la mode clothing that she makes herself that are super fashion forward, but also clearly meant to evoke the 60s. She says the 50s. She says, I prefer to dress like the 1950s. I like old things. Yeah, because the inherent premise of this film is not only that Nancy is a fish out of water because she's moved from the small town to the big city, but also that she is literally her character from the 1950s. Yeah, not literally, but more or less, she's the character from the books put into a present day context so that everyone thinks that she's old fashioned and she doesn't quite make sense to them. But guess what, Joe? Guess what? By the end of the film, we all decide the old ways are the best ways. Mm-hmm. Yes. Once again, that leaning into nostalgia. 
The film thinks that it's being progressive by modernizing everything around Nancy, but still having her be the heroine who gets all the right decisions and catches the criminals and so on. And she's annoyingly perfect. Like, I didn't get the sense in the book that Nancy Drew is perfect. Like, the town is obviously in love with her. But, like, there's this scene in the movie where they're decorating for a party and the two boys decorate one room and it looks like two boys decorated a room. Mm -hmm. And then the camera pans and Nancy goes, oh, I did the other room. And it pans to it and it, like, looks like Martha Stewart's entire decorating team did the room. There actually is a Martha Stewart joke, too. There is, yeah. And it's typed into a Juicy Couture branded texting phone. Oh, wow. We have come a long way. Thank goodness. (laughs) And I I get that that is supposed to be a joke, but it is not funny at all. And it's indicative of how one-dimensionally the filmmakers have read this character. Oh, yeah. I think. She's meant to be a literally perfect woman. In every way. In every way. For me, the biggest challenge of watching this film is it's so frustrating to watch Emma Roberts stuck in this pious, perfect role. And she's meant to be hyper-intelligent, hyper-aware of all of these things. Like, she can spot and decipher and recite anything that she needs to in any given situation, but she can't read the room at the high school. Because she's such a buffoon and she's so dumb when it comes to human interactions. The film opens with her foiling a burglary in a church, and they discover her in the closet, which is very much akin to what happens in the secret of the old clock and she basically says hi i'm nancy drew what are your names as though it's cute and quirky but really it just levels out any kind of situational danger also i literally didn't understand that scene at all because then she suddenly decides to flee from them and she climbs like a curtain in order to get to the roof of the building Mm -hmm. but at no point did i understand why she was doing that well, I think she thought that if she could just get away from them for long enough, that would open up the opportunity for the cops to come in and arrest them. That but then she clear. falls off a roof and then hang glides down That's or so, uh, repels. We talked last week when I was talking about that Hoot movie I watched. Yes. That I actually really like a kid caper. Mm-hmm. I love a kid caper. But there's something about this movie that it just falls so flat every single time they try to do something kid caperish well i think part of the problem is that it's always accentuated by very ridiculous sound effects and music cues and also because part of what's compelling about a kid caper is that kids don't always succeed and they do Mm -hmm. dumb they make dumb mistakes and they aren't physically strong enough to do the things they want to do so there's you know there's prat falling and there's mistakes and failure and because you don't get any of the that side of the kid caper in this movie because it's a kid caper by someone who is like literally perfect it's just tedious yeah and watching her get into scrapes with criminals like as i alluded to earlier at one point she's literally rear-ended while driving and emma roberts looks like she's about 12 years old in this movie so to watch her driving an open roof convertible through la and then get rear-ended and spin through an intersection and hit another car that kind of action doesn't then mesh with the kind of wacky pratfalls that we've seen earlier in the film and she she ultimately ends up walking away from it but the tonal shifts are so jarring this film thinks that it's both wacky but also serious and it's telling a fish out of water comedy but it's also trying to make all these various class critiques but also be a hollywood satire that casts bruce willis in a cameo yeah and has 
Barry Boswick as a scenery-chewing villain, it's all over the place and none it's of it so ends up working. It's all over the place. That I think that's the perfect way to articulate what's going on here. And the best parts of the movie for me... Opening and closing credits? I loved the opening credits. So if yeah. you've not seen the film, the opening credits basically make use of the illustration style within the Nancy Drew books, those black and white illustrations of Nancy's capers. Mm-hmm to set up sort of an animated opening sequence that's really effective. They use it again at the close where they sort of render into that type of imagery all the actors from the film. It's a little bit less effective than the opening. But still kind of fun. But still kind of fun. But the problem is, (laughs) I texted Joe the second this happened. So the movie transitions at the end from this sort of animated closing credit that's relatively clever, not as good as the opening, but good. And then it transitions inexplicably into Kids in America. Yes, which we just discussed Ah! in our Emma Clueless episode. So that's the opening song of that film, and it really sets the tone for a kind of fun, vibrant, flighty film. And also a satire of teen culture. Yes. Whereas you just get to the end, and you're like, what about this movie was supposed Mm -hmm. to evoke kids in America for me? Because literally nothing. No. Well, because at the end of the day, these aren't real characters. No. Like, none of them feel authentic. They all no. feel like heightened movie characters. Let's watch Wacky Nancy Drew. Hi, I'm Ned. I'm here to be your heartthrob in this line scene. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I will not forgive this film for wasting Josie and the Pussycats' Rachel Lee Cook in a yes. utterly thankless role, who's meant to be the emotional linchpin of I this know. film. So the whole thing is, again, we're looking for the will to this house that they've rented, which will go to the dead movie star's daughter if it can be found. Because she was put up for adoption. Yeah. But the manager's trying to hide the fact that she had a daughter who was put up for adoption. (sighs) Who could care? (laughs) (laughs) Like, they introduce Rachel Lee Cook as this adopted daughter who's never had a relationship with her mom and doesn't know who her father is. And we're meant to care whether or not she gets evicted from her crappy little rental unit and care about the safety of her daughter. But we don't ever learn anything about her. No, she appears in like two scenes and doesn't show up until maybe three quarters of the way through the film. So it just, it's one of those things where you're like, you can't introduce an emotional component and then not spend any time on them and then think that we care at the end. Joe... Let's move on. Can we talk about the film I liked? (laughs) Yes. Okay. Okay. So that's the 2007 version. And then there was a new version that was made this year, 2019. So not the TV show. And this one is called Nancy Drew and the Hidden Staircase. It's directed by Kat Shea from a screenplay by Nina Fiore and John Herrera. And it stars Sophia Lillis from the It movies, as well as uh, Sharp Objects from HBO as Nancy. And we've got Zoe Renee as George, Mackenzie Graham as her cousin Bess, Laura Wiggins as Beth, beloved Hollywood legend Linda Lavin as Flora, who takes on the role of the elderly woman with the haunted house. She's great. She's great. Andrew Matthew Welch as Deputy Patrick. Also great, especially in contrast to Ned. Better, but he looks so babyface that to oh, take yeah. him as a Oh yeah, no, there's no way is... he's a police officer. No. Yeah. <laughs> I just kind of wish that Nancy had had like a love interest who was helping her out as opposed to someone on the police force. I don't know why they didn't just make it so that he was like, you know, they have like volunteer programs with police for like right. teenagers. I don't understand why they didn't just make him that. Yeah. 
But I did appreciate that as a result of him being a police officer, it was like a gentle flirtation between them and not, we didn't have to waste time on a love story. Yeah. 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 John Brittle as Nate, who I only bring up because he's the villain of the film. And yeah. then Sam Trammell as Carson Drew, her father. And people who have listened to the podcast before will recognize him as the dad from The Fault in Our Stars. Yeah. Well, he plays a good dad, Sam Trammell. He does. Yeah. Did we run the trailer? Uh, let's do it right now. Since moving to this nowhere town, I'm still waiting for an ounce of excitement. Nancy Drew! Check it out. The creepy twin Elms house has gone viral. Finally, things are about to get a little more interesting. The legend dates back to 1885, when the Colfax brothers, who built Twin Elms, had a falling out over a woman. Legend has it, you can hear them crying in the walls. Sometimes it's weird sounds. The lights start flickering. Things just stop making sense. You think I'm crazy, huh? Smidge. There's gotta be an explanation. So what do we know? One, we know a black Mercedes was lurking around Twin Elms. Two, we know somebody came in here and scared us half to death. And three, we know it felt insanely real. <gasps> mean Girls first. Okay, so... You're forgiven, Joe. There's two trailers this week. It's just yeah, so confusing. Right. Two books, two trailers. It's too much. I it's enjoyed this. I mean, I don't... Like, I didn't love it. I don't think it's perfect. But as an adaptation of the book, it works really well for me. That was the general consensus, is that it's a more successful attempt at modernizing this property. It still keeps a lot of the same vibes, but it does bring Nancy into the modern world. So the interesting thing about this is that it's still a bit of a fish out of water narrative because in this version, Nancy has moved from Chicago to mm -hmm. River Heights. So she's moved the opposite way from the previous film. So she's gone from a big city to a small town mm -hmm. and that's part of her struggle. So they've also given her a dead mom backstory. So mm -hmm. she's a little bit mad at her father for moving her. She actually does have a dead mom in the, in the Emma Roberts version too. It's just, there's no emotional weight to that at all. Oh gosh, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in this version of the story, she is a bit of a righteous do-gooder. So the film opens not with her solving anything. It actually, it's her getting retribution for a bit of a malicious prank that was pulled on one of the cousins at school. She paints a boy blue, but in the process, she also damages a lot of public property. And mm -hmm. she ends up having to do... Uh, she could have been <laughs> fined very badly and maybe gone to like some kind of juvenile detention. Yes. But it gets walked down to community service. And in the process, she meets Miss Flora and Beth, who is the girlfriend of the boy that she painted blue. And Miss Flora has a house that is haunted. But of course, it turns out that it's actually just standing in the way of a train line that if the house could be bulldozed, then certain parties could stand to make a lot of money. So of course, they set up a fake haunting so that they can scare the old woman into signing away. So it's very much the Hidden Staircase book adapted for a more contemporary audience. And I liked it. It's fun. It is fun. I really love the opening sequence with uh, Nancy Drew longboards in this version, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I found adorable because it's very much like as someone who grew up in a very small town, there's always the kid who moves to the small town from the big city and has the weird affectation 
or what seems like a weird affectation to your small town sensibilities. Mm -hmm. So I really dug the whole like, yeah, she longboards. No one else in the town longboards. Yeah. (laughs) But she goes everywhere on her longboard. I kind of loved that. I appreciated that they made her 16 and addressed the fact that, no, she does not have an open top convertible in this. She longboards because that's typically what teenagers who don't have a ton of money. Yes. You would either bike, you would walk, you would take public transit, or, you know, in this case, you longboard. Yes. Even though Emma Roberts looks so freaking young in that other film, the way that all of the teens act, it didn't feel real to teenagers at all. Whereas the teens in this film, I don't always love the way that they act. And I actually found that the cousins, I found, to be honest, are really annoying. I agree completely. And I also hate that. So the premise of the way Helen and Nancy are set up in this movie is that they are enemies first who come to appreciate each other. And that is such a tired trope for female friendship in film that I was just like, can we just skip to the part where they're friends? I don't need to see yet another portrayal of a mean girl who secretly has a heart of gold. Yes, and I should clarify at this point, I've been calling her Beth for some reason. I don't know why. Yes, it's (laughs) Helen. Helen is the girlfriend of the boy who's painted blue. She's the, is it niece of Laura? Yes. Yeah, everything to do with the rockiness of the female relationships between Helen and Nancy. I didn't mind that because it felt like they kind of skipped over it relatively quickly. Like they got on board with each other and it was fine. But then every time the cousins got introduced and particularly the way that George acts around Helen, like she wasn't the butt of the joke, but she thinks that she's standing up for her cousin by basically just talking down to this girl and suggesting that because she dresses pretty, that she is somehow less of a person. It felt very, not just antiquated, but also frustrating. Like the film basically comes to a halt every single time these characters interact and it's repetitive and boring. It is boring. And it's very much sets up Nancy Drew and her two best friends, like the three of them stand in contrast to the rest of the school and I totally remember what that feels like but they do the lazy mid-2000s move of well I'm not like other girls as mm-hmm. the reason for their outsider status yeah and it's just not necessary no this is the part of the movie that also doesn't feel earned because we yeah. don't spend any time with that the film literally opens with them being pranked and then getting revenge on this character who by the way comes to nothing in this film so we don't even get some kind of roundabout apology all we hear is that helen has dumped him about three quarters of the way through the film but who could care the other thing that's weird about that is the dad starts out as like this threatening figure and Mm -hmm. i thought he was going to be like the through line villain like that would have made a lot of sense (laughs) if they had tied it back so that he instead of uncle nate was the villain yeah because he threatens he's like you got to keep your daughter in line so then it would make sense that he has like a vendetta against the dad who's already working against this railway that he wants like it's so weird to me that they just left that alone and introduced this rando uncle nate Mm -hmm. they almost overcomplicate things when there was more of a streamlined approach that yeah admittedly would have been more obvious from a narrative point of view but it also would have worked better oh i'm sorry is nancy drew not supposed to be completely obvious Uh, I think the other thing that I appreciated about this is that the level of violence and the kind of escalating threats feels more appropriate for the kind of story that they're telling. So there's an entire climax where her father is being held at gunpoint along with Miss Flora by Uncle Nate, as well as the Willie Wharton character who 
is just like a thug in this movie. Mm-hmm. But the two girls end up using the ghostly apparatus that they were using to try to scare Miss Flora. Mm-hmm. And I like that because it feels like something that kids would do, right? Like they don't have the capacity to to try to battle these men yes. because they're teenage girls and these are grown men. So they use their wits and the kind of homestead against them. And that felt a little bit more appropriate to me. I agree completely. Now, I will say the thing I did not love was the house. No, I don't get it. So it basically looks like a regular house that also has a giant secret passage. Yes. (laughs) And the secret passage looks like what you would expect to see in a haunted house film from the 50s. But the house is just a kind of garishly overstuffed monstrosity. Yep. But we're meant to believe that there's like entire secret passages in the walls that they can use to manipulate and do all these weird special effects with. I really wish that it had been more like a house on the edge of town and just have it be like a weird gothic, almost like an Adams family kind of like, oh, that house doesn't look modern at all. How come it's still here? Yep. I spent some time okay. trying to figure out how many Nancy Drew versions exist in the universe. Like film versions? Films and TV shows. Okay. I'm I'm interested to hear this because I think there's at least six movies. Okay, so Wikipedia says that things that actually made it to production, like actually got released, mm-hmm. that there have been five feature films, two television shows running for more than two years, and four television pilots or like right. a few episodes. Yes. So that's... 11 times but then i started reading about the ones that never got off the ground yeah because the new nancy drew that's coming is i think the second or third attempt it's a second or third attempt recently yeah okay so first of all there was a version in 1989 that was going to star margot kidder as an adult nancy drew Mm -hmm. it didn't make it so in 2015 there was a version that was just going to be called drew yeah i remember that one anthony edwards was cast as the dad Then in 2017, there was another version where they tried to revamp that version, which Mm -hmm. was going to be about a middle-aged Nancy who writes the books. And then that's like the frame narrative for every episode. I mean, some of these just sound atrocious. Some murder she wrote, basically. (laughs) Basically. There was a series in 1995 starring Scott Speedman, Mm. which I would watch because I love Scott Speedman. But anyway, all this to say, so I started to try. I I mean... Nancy Drew is really famous, but this is a lot of incarnations considering how many of them have failed. Right. So then I looked back and I discovered that in 1937, Warner Brothers bought the rights to the idea of Nancy Drew in perpetuity for $6,000. Wow. That is a good return on investment. Seriously, because even if you adjust for inflation, that it's about $100,000 in 2019 dollars. Mm-hmm. But if you think about how much just grist for the mill they've gotten out of that. Yeah. Huh? But the problem is, is like, these properties don't ever seem to find any success. Like, that to me is one of the most fascinating things about Nancy Drew, is that yeah. there's a name recognition, but there seems to be no amount of audience goodwill to the actual filmed adaptations. So, like, if we're looking at this, the 2007 film, it only made $25 million in the U.S. Yep. on a $20 million budget. So that's a big old flop. Mm-hmm. And then if we're looking at the new one, I can't imagine it was too much more, but I also know that it didn't do 
particularly well. It got no. better reviews from critics, and I yeah. think people liked it more as a film because it is arguably, inarguably, a stronger film. Yes. But, like, people like Nancy Drew, but they don't seem to want to see her on the big screen or on TV, which makes no. me all the more interested to see how this new CW version is going to go because she's obviously college age. Yeah. Listeners, we apologize. We're recording this before the show has dropped, so we don't actually know how we well know. it's been executed, but it looks... We assume no one wants to watch it. Uh... <laughs> I mean, I guess to me, at the end of the day, what it looks like is just... it looks like hot people maybe solving crimes in yeah. a Riverdale adjacent town. Can I share some more Nancy Drew trivia with you? Absolutely. Would you like to know what her name is in other countries? Yes. So in France, she's Alice Roy. <laughs> what? Yeah. In Sweden, she's Kitty Drew. Kinda in cute. Finland, she's Paula Drew. Okay. In Norway, she's still Nancy Drew, but the book series is called Miss Detective. Nice. And in Germany, she's a law student named Suzanne Langen, which is completely different, which I love. Yeah, but isn't Robert Langdon the protagonist of all of those like crypto mysteries? From oh, the Dan Brown, Dan Brown books. <laughs> he is indeed. So she's like his daughter in Germany. <laughs> P.S. Did you know that Dan Brown has YA-ified all of his books? I'm not interested. <laughs> We will not be reading those, and we will not be covering those films. Hard pass. <laughs> Using my veto, pulling the parachute. Bye. I'm done talking about Nancy Drew, friend. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> listeners beware. We could do Hardy Boys, because I know for sure that they also had a TV series, but I don't think a movie. Maybe. Hmm. I don't know. Give me some time before we do that. I don't know that there's enough to this property, to be honest. Yeah. I would like to hear from you, listeners, if you have a relationship with Nancy Drew, is it entirely based on nostalgia and reading the books in your youth or maybe getting them passed down generationally from like a mother or an aunt or something like that? Also really interested to hear from people who have read the modernizations because the other mm. thing I was reading about is how many modernizations of books there have been so yeah. there was a series called the Nancy Drew Files there was a series called the Nancy Drew Notebooks there was a series called Nancy Drew on Campus there was oh, a series no. called Nancy Drew Super Mystery mm. I'm dying to know if the modernizations have the same kind of charm for people who love this character because right. I wonder if maybe why Nancy Drew is successful is because it's a snapshot of a different kind of time and that these modernizations are all sort of doomed to failure for that reason. Yeah, it's almost made sense to do this back to back with Riverdale because the yeah. other interesting thing is is that element of timelessness and almost placelessness, right? Where yeah. Nancy Drew is meant to evoke this small town charm that has an everywhere kind of feel to it. Mm -hmm. Which, again, is why I think that 2007 film really craps the bed because yep. moving it to L.A. Makes no sense. Makes no sense. Okay. Do we have time for a quick round of YA bingo? Oh, we better. Okay. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Do you have any off the top? Convenient expertise. Oh, my gosh. I'd forgotten about that square. <laughs> and that could be the most perfect example ever. <laughs> Convenient expertise, convenient expertise, convenient expertise. I was also going to, um, only for the 2007 version. Mediocre white boy. Mediocre white boys. Ned is egregious. He's unforgivably bad. 
It's pretty bad. Now, yeah. the question is, do you want to go into musicality for that Emma Roberts film, considering how odd and ill-placed <laughs> so many of those music <gasps> cues are? Oh my god, every time a song started. So I was, in fairness, after the first about 20 minutes of the movie, I was like, I can't just watch this. I'm going to also do work emails while this is on. Fair. And literally every time a song started, my head would snap over to the screen like, wait, what? what? <laughs> There's never been worse musical direction in a film, I think. <laughs> no. So, okay, I have another question. Do we want to consider the Bruce Willis and assorted famous Hollywood people in that Emma Roberts home as stunt casting? I do want, I think that's definitely stunt casting. And actually, I think there's an argument to be made for Sam Trammell, Tramwell. Ding dong. Yeah. Um, I think there's an argument to be made that he is becoming a YA dad stunt cast choice mm. because he does tend to anchor these movies really well. Like he's a good YA dad. And you'll notice that they use him where the dad needs to be like an emotional centerpiece to the film. Yes. So I'm starting to qualify seeing him on the list as stunt casting. Yes. Okay. I will accept it. Cool. Uh, I'm going to throw in some unlikely friendships because in the new film, you know, Helen and Nancy just shouldn't be friends. Because one of them's pretty and the other one is pretty in a different way. But credit to the actress playing Helen, I did appreciate that she looked exactly like what you would expect, but that she was actually charming and looked still age appropriate. I think honestly, she's a better actress than that role was written. And it's nice when that happens. But if we're going to give any credit to, like, acting talent, I do want to give a shout out to Sophia. Oh, she's so good. She's a great Nancy. To be honest, I think she's probably one of the best actresses of her generation. Like, Mm -hmm. if you're looking for a really, really good female teenager, you can't go wrong with her. No. She's really good. Uh, Do you have any other ones? Mm, That's what I came up with. Okay. Yeah. No Vancouver tie-in? Is it Vancouver? I have no idea. I feel like I've been away now for six weeks and I don't know what the town looks like anymore. Aww. <laughs> How quickly they forget. It didn't look like Vancouver to me, but uh, I've been wrong before. Fair enough. Well, yeah. maybe someone can let us know. Yeah, definitely let us know. If you were like, Brenna, that was clearly First Avenue, then feel free to let me know. Mm-hmm. It's been a while, all right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, Brenna, run us through our end of episode shenanigans. So, if you want to get in touch with us and let us know that act actually nancy drew is really great you can do that um you can find both of us on the twitters at hashtag hkhs pod mm-hmm. and joe where do they find you if they want to talk to just you about nancy drew just me and only me about nancy drew yeah okay i'm at b still on my remote and that's the letter b I'm at Brenna C. Gray. that's gray with an a if you want to send us your nancy drew fan fiction actually would read it's hkhspod at gmail.com mm-hmm. and i just checked the internet while i was doing that and it was filmed in georgia okay yes mm, georgia too bad <laughs> um joe mm-hmm. what are we doing next week because it is october i thought it would be a good time to do something spooky but instead of doing what i had originally <laughs> planned which was i know what you did last summer i figured you might not like that so i'm going to keep it a little bit historical and we're okay. going to read ray bradbury's something wicked this way comes oh mm-hmm. genre classics joe i like it yeah so who doesn't love a spooky carnival i mean me but go on well <laughs> You know what? I'm going to ask you to give it your best try. 
You know what? We have been like dabbling. I mean, Riverdale notwithstanding, I feel like we've been really outside of my comfort zone for a while here and I'm enjoying it. It's been going well. I'm glad I saw this Nancy Drew movie. I'm glad I finally read a Nancy Drew book and I will probably feel the same way about Ray Bradbury. Yeah, I remember seeing this movie. I can't even remember if it's an 80s or 90s film, but I remember being vividly terrified. Yeah. But that was as a child. So I'm actually very eager to revisit it and see if it holds up. And I don't know that I've ever read a Ray Bradbury book. I know straight up I haven't. Okay. So this is an inauguration for both of us. We got this. Yeah. Okay. So until then. I'll see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye.